0: Movies. Not every movie, but a lot of them, and especially their trailers. It's called The Brahm. And in case before this moment and before we get too far into the weeds here and you haven't heard or heard of The Brahm, except just now, and perhaps in its glistening example... (laughs) we're going to take some minutes to familiarize ourselves right off the bat with the breadth of this sound effect. What follows is a kind of audio supercut, or, you know, I guess montage, if you like. A video version of which was originally compiled and edited by my friend Stephen Bruckert when this episode was performed live at XOXO Fest in Portland in September of 2016. So, okay, montage. While giving it a listen... Don't think about it too hard. Just, you know, listen. Which I know is a weird thing to say since you kind of need to do one in order to do the other, but I think the Brahm is about a feeling. Its essence lies in its effective function, as much if not more than a set of specific sonic qualities worth searching for specifically. Anyway, here we go. A small, um... I don't know, actually. What's a good collective noun for a melodramatic movie sound effect? Crows have murder and flamingos have flamboyance. Let's call it. A Gravitas of Brahms. So, okay, here we go, finally. A Gravitas of Brahms. Let's get to work. Is this some kind of exercise? Probably. What's the most resilient parasite? The only lead we have is this sound. to be ruled. What philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said about determining what is and is not a game is true also of the Brahm, I think. There is no single make-or-break factor in its categorical membership, but rather a complicated network of similarities, overlapping and crisscrossing. Similarities in the large and in the small. Like pornography, the Brahm is known most clearly when we see it. Or, I guess, hear it. And actually just... As a quick digression on seeing and not hearing, I, like many others, spell Brahm with three A's so as to indicate the length of the sound itself. One A is the person who wrote Dracula, and two A's still looks like it could be the name of a tall, attractive gentleman from some far-off Nordic wonderland. Bram with four A's just looks absurd and cloying, like the sound of an ambulance or fire alarm in a foreign country. Three A's seems to me the perfect number to express the precise amount of phoneme extension. You know, like when you write LOL instead of LOL to let people know exactly how long you're laughing out loud at your computer screen when they do something funny on the internet. Three A's is the perfect number for the onomatopoeia, for the rousing yet succinct Brahm. The Brahm entered the public consciousness with inception and has come a long way since. It's got some interesting sonic kin, and it may shock you to learn regarding this highly influential piece of pop culture minutia created for a massively successful commercial film, there is some controversy over its authorship. Did Inception's composer Hans Zimmer invent the Brahm? That same film's sound designer? Someone else? The truth is that, and here we employ a classic internet media trope to encourage you to stay through the rest of the episode, the sound's real originator may surprise you. That's what this episode of Reasonably Sound is about. The Brahm, its brethren, their history, and significance. And to start, after a quick act break, we're going to chat about the anatomy of a Brahm. Strictly speaking, a Brahm gets going pretty quick. And again, there are going to be things we could probably call Brahm's that break each of these individual rules that I'm about to talk about. We should be excited about the categorical challenge exceptions provide, not dismayed that our categories can't handily deal with them. If variety is the spice of life, then exception and contradiction are its texture. So anyway, a Brahm categorically has a short attack And often they start with some inharmonic sound, something noisy or percussive, a crash, a boom. (coughs) Yeah, how great. Anyway, anyway, Abram categorically has a short attack. And often they start with some inharmonic sound, something noisy or percussive, a crash, a boom, a thud, a sizzle. The Inception sound starts with a kick drum slash gate slamming type thing and the of loudly-blown fortissimo horns. This kicking-things-off sound can be all kinds of stuff. Synth noise, a bow hitting the strings of an acoustic instrument, it can be a filter or distortion that changes an underlying sound and not some separate thing. Here are a few more Brahm attacks separated out for reference. They're short, so we're gonna listen to each one of them twice. They're from the Rogue One, Battleship, and G.I. Joe Retaliation trailers, respectively. Keep an ear out for their noisy, percussive beginnings. So then after that, as the Brahm continues to play out after the noise, it simplifies in one way or another, and it becomes more sonorous. It moves from inharmonic to harmonic, from noise to note, from sizzle to tone. And that transition from noisy or percussive to tonal usually happens during a fade out of various lengths. Generally, a Brahm is on the longer side and sort of droney. The inception sound, again, after the drum hit and the has mainly the tone of brass instruments with some effects. Here are the ends of those other three Brahms. Recalling the first part of each, think about how different the second parts are. Again, we're going to listen to each of them twice. Now, perhaps it's like pointing out that the sky is blue or Jaden Smith is a really schnazzy dresser, but Brahms are often low. They're growly. They may be nasal or gritty, but even so, they have a grumble, and they feel large. Regarding the creation of his own Brahm, Zimmer said, I put a piano in the middle of a church, and I put a book on the pedal, and these brass players would basically play into the resonance of the piano, and then I added a bit of electronic nonsense. We perceive that resonance that Zimmer mentions as size. By put a book on the pedal, Zimmer means he permanently depressed the sustain pedal of the piano— ...that lets its strings vibrate freely, undampened by a mechanism that rests on them if the pedal is up. With the pedal down, even if you don't literally play the piano, like touch the keys, if you make sound into it, the strings, undampened, vibrate sympathetically with that sound. Shouting into a piano with its sustained pedal down is both a required class at every liberal arts college with a music department and a little like shouting in a cathedral or a concert hall. The sound becomes big and live. So having horns play into a piano with the sustain pedal depressed while also in a church is a great example of the characteristic subtlety we've all come to expect from the work of Mr. Zimmer. I will say, creator or not, there's something perfectly believable about Zimmer's authorship of the Brahms simply because they're so extravagant. They're somewhere between a whale call and the fading rumble of distant thunder fronted by the banging of war drums, sizzle of an electrical arc, or the thud of dense steel striking loosely packed dirt. The Brahms contains low-frequency information that unsettles things. Or warns that things are about to become unsettled. Like the T-Rex in Jurassic Park or your upstairs neighbor who apparently wears lead boots while doing DIY at-home crossfit. The Brahm makes liquid surfaces ripple. Low is big. And often big is low. And the whole arrangement is very dramatic. Which is why the anatomy of the Brahm, or if you're an audio nerd, what you may call its morphology, is interesting, I think. The Brahm is not only dramatic in the colloquial sense. It's effusive, affecting, menacious, portentous, ominous. Probably at least one other three-syllable word ending in O-U-S. But besides those things, it's also classically dramatic. It begins a complex knot of sonic information. Busy, inharmonic, and if not chaotic, then sudden, stirring. Like many of the action movies whose trailers it graces, the Brahm gets right to the action. Whatever setup is needed is itself also exciting. But then the complexity of the brah is responded to by the am, but not, I don't think, entirely resolved. The stirring noise of the first part may give way to an evenness in the second, but the lowness of the am is not reassuring. It's not comforting. Something remains unsettled. The brahm is ultimately and meaningfully mysterious. Oh, that's the other one mysterious. I'll readily admit that it is an unfair comparison, but on some level, perhaps even a purely geometric one, I would argue that any given Brahm tells a better story than the movies whose trailers it graces. It's often more focused, authoritative, sure-footed, and meaningfully open to interpretation. At the very least, the Brahm has a better narrative than, say, Transformers 3. The only other popular sound that has this kind of denouement, I think, is the THX sound, more officially known as Deep Note. Originally written in 1982 and premiered before Return of the Jedi, it was resynthesized in 2015 by its original creator, Dr. James Moorer, on modern equipment. The aim was to take the audience, and this is a direct quote from THX's press release from the last year, on an epic sensory journey unlike anything they've experienced before. And it's, I mean, If you haven't heard it recently, I recommend you go give it a listen. It's easy to find on YouTube, and it is. I mean, it's a wild ride. In comparison to the Brahm, it's definitely a much more classically shaped narrative arc. Deep note is to the Hobbit, as the Brahm is to say, like, the expendables. That's not a bad thing. It's just a thing. It's just how Brahm's are made. And knowing, now, what makes a Brahm, we should talk about its purpose. How and why it works which involves war, weather, and some wild boars. The Brahm is mostly found in movies about aliens, sometimes robots, but often they're alien robots, though. Zimmer himself has described the Brahm as the sonic blueprint for action films. Horror trailers have distortion, high-pitched dissonant sounds and long silences to let you know that you should be scared right before scaring you. And comedy trailers have that weird, crashing whoosh sound to announce and accentuate punchlines. Action trailers then have the Brahm, signaling danger. Inception's Brahm let us know that reality itself is unseated from its track, rumbled loose, so we can't know what's actual. Battleship's Brahm's are decidedly more croaky, the groan of metal hulls constricting, sphincter-like in preparation for hostility. Elysiums are synthetic, efficient, straightforward, with an air of self-importance, just like Matt Damon. Transformers in Pacific Rims are mechanical, robotic, and otherworldly. In every case, the Brahm is portending, foreshadowing. They're bad-news Brahm's. This, I think, also explains why they're used in trailers more than they are in films themselves. It's hardly in the spirit of the frenetic modern action film, often cut to strike a rhythmic visual similarity to a fistfight on Uppers-themed fever dream after a dinner exclusively of cheese to pause the action in order to let play out the long, low melodrama of the Brahm. And besides, if you're watching the film, the danger is already here! Brahm's aren't the emergency broadcast alert system designed to snap the spell cast by the people playing the guitar on the MTV. Brahm's function more like civil air defense sirens. The danger is on its way, Place your pencils inside your zipper case. Get under your desk and wait. And hope. Sonically air raid sirens aren't as grumbly as the Brahm, it's true, but they do get close while they're spinning up. And just... As a brief digression, basically the way these work is that a big motor spins a fan, which sucks air inward and pushes it through a kind of rotor. The rotor has gaps in it that line up with these little windows called vanes that are on the motor's metal chassis called a stator. Each time the gaps of the rotor line up with the vane of the stator, a burst of air is pushed through them. When the air is pushed through those gaps many times a second, you start to get a tone. Lots of civil air defense sirens have two rotors and two stators with differing numbers of gaps or veins, so each side produces a different tone. I bring this up because the classic air raid siren sound is the result of two tones which are, in musical terms, a just intonation minor third apart. In less technical terms, that's an interval associated with sadness. These things were originally developed to warn people about air raids during World War II and were eventually implemented as potential nuclear strike warning systems. Now, many of them are used to warn of things like earthquakes, floods, and tornadoes. And sometimes all of the above, with differing rhythms or pitches to indicate what exactly the warning is for. It's not a huge additional suspension of disbelief that... In some other possible world, civil air defense sirens would warn of giant kaiju bound to clobber a coastal metropolis, perhaps using the lowest tone capable of being heard around the bay. And speaking of low tones heard around the bay, more like the Brahm in tone, if not attitude, is the foghorn. Which, I mean, yeah, okay, fog, or really, more specifically, whatever hull-wrecking landmark hides within it, isn't exactly the nail-biting threat of air raids or aggressive extraterrestrials, but no one ever claimed safety was exciting. Some foghorns do have a similar shape to the Brom. The foghorn is low in comparison to the air raid siren because of where it has to be placed. Air raid sirens are often atop hills or mountains. Buildings are just really tall poles, so there isn't much obstruction. Their alert travels easily, and its high, lonesome sound cuts through whatever other noise is on the ground. The foghorn, on the other hand, is where danger is. That danger is rocks, land, barrier structures, places that are low, enclosed, or obstructed. Low-frequency sounds are used in these situations because, one— They just travel further. As sound moves through air, it loses energy, but low frequencies aren't absorbed as easily. A big wavelength means it has more power, and so it pushes more. And two, low frequencies don't reflect off of surfaces as much as higher ones. A high-frequency sound will bounce off of a hard surface. A certain portion of low frequencies may reflect, but some will move around that surface and even through it. So foghorns will sound around rocks, through barriers, over ships, etc., There is, of course, a little bit more to it than all of that, and it's different for different surfaces, but you get the gist. While low sounds may travel further relative to higher ones, they're also less directional. It's harder to tell where a low tone is coming from. And this is sort of fun if we think of the Brahm not as a warning about the danger afoot, but rather as emanating from it. We may know danger is near, but from where exactly? Who knows? Its nature, its source, its location unknown, and therefore the worst kind of threatening. Insert necessary passing reference to Lovecraft so no one gets upset here. The Brahm from before Brahms, that I like the most, originates long before air raids, foghorns, and even electricity. This Brahm of yore is made not by a machine, but by an instrument. A trumpet. But not anything like what you picture when I say trumpet. Go ahead. Picture a trumpet. Anything you can reasonably call a trumpet. Just picture it. You got something? Okay. Does it look like a bore? Because that's what we're going to be talking about. The Deskford Carnix. C-A-R-N-Y-X. In case you want to Google it. Which you do. The horn of this thing is shaped like a roundish boar head. With its mouth wide open. There is actually another Carnex, Which looks like a much meaner, more devilish boar. With big wide ears open like wings on the side of its head. That's the Tintinyak Carnex. But we're going to talk about the Deskford Carnex Because of how it sounds. Which is... A little weird because there are no historical recordings of it, only modern ones. The Carnix is old. The Carnices are a Celtic trumpet from the Iron Ages. They were used during a 400-year period, in the center of which your homeboy Jesus did his masterful reverse Irish goodbye. They were made of iron or bronze, and all the playable ones we have now are faithful reconstructions built from archaeological findings. And they're played by one dude, John Kenny. The world's only living Carnex player and the first Carnex player in two millennia. So what I mean to say is that we're gonna be talking about the Deskford Carnex perhaps because of how it sounds, but also perhaps because of how John Kenny tends to play it. Because that's kinda of all we have. So I just I wanna admit that up front. So the Deskford Carnix is played vertically. Picture a periscope, like on a submarine, but a trumpet with a boar's head on it, standing some number of feet above the player's own head. Why, you may ask? To intimidate aggressors, of course. A good number of carvings and etchings from the period indicate that carneses were used in battle to rally troops and psych out enemy combatants. How does such a silly thing psych out an enemy combatant, you might ask? To answer that, here is a clip of John Kenny playing a Deskford Carnix. Links to this YouTube video and all the other sources in the show notes and on reasonablysound.com, by the way. The top comment on this YouTube video reads, I would kill that guy first. A good question at this point may be, why this instrument? It's not the first or last battle horn. It's not exceptionally Brahmi. So, two reasons. First, while it is true that not every noise the Deskford Carnix makes sounds like a brahm, it is capable of making some very brahm-like sounds. But also important is the shape of this thing and its use. It's a safe assumption that the creators of this instrument weren't principally concerned with low-frequency sounds traveling far, getting around obstacles, warning of danger, or any of that stuff. Though, they do have their tall pole stylings in common with air raid sirens. Really, the goal here was probably to reference the sound of a wild boar. (laughs) Wild boars were sacred animals for the Celts, who thought them to possess the soul of a warrior. It would be likely that helmets, shields, whatever, like the Carnyx itself, would be styled in the image of this woolly, croaking behemoth. The horn was just one piece in a themed set, like if your grandma went to literal war using her fine china. Sonically, the air raid siren and the foghorn may be closer to the Brahm as we know it, but the carnex possesses all kinds of similarities in the large and in the small to that sound effect and its purpose. There's a significant parallelism here between the warrior spirit, the danger and tension of battle, the untamed wild animal, the Deskford carnex specifically, and horns generally, which are arguably the most prominently featured instrument in the construction of modern Brahms. And it all comes into play in the moment some low rumble warns of impending aliens because over millennia, we've sort of learned that's what these sounds mean and had that reinforced at so many turns. After all, in the Bible, when the seventh seal is broken, seven angels play seven trumpets, which signal one by one the events of the apocalypse. Whether or not any or all of those trumpets brahm, we can't say for sure. If I were to guess, I would say the fifth horn, the scorpion-tailed locust horn, but that's just a guess. Either way, throughout a huge swath of human culture, the horn, and sounds like it, the boar, the brahm, the air raid siren, even dubstep wubs, have all heralded some form of the apocalypse. So to say the brahm was invented by one person is tough. Like many good ideas, it was there for the taking, staring us in the ears all along. Nonetheless, credit should be given where it's due. History values a kind of certainty. So let's address, finally, the authorship of the Brahm as we know it. (music) What you may have noticed during the gravitas of Brahms that started the show is that there are three Inception sounds. There's the one that I associate most readily with the movie, and I think most other people do. But then there's another, less invasive one from the film's second trailer. And another from Inception's teaser trailer. So we're already off to a shaky start here. When we talk about who made the Brahm that made Brahms, which Brahm is that Brahm? Is it possible that one Brahm introduced the idea of Brahms to the listening public and the other cemented Brahm's notoriety? That there was a process during which we acclimated to the Brahm, and it is then therefore impossible to say which Brahm did it? This is germane because the authorship over each Brahm is different, and not in like... An easy way. Hans Zimmer gets and takes lots of credit for having made the Brahm and made it a thing. He talks about the piano and the church and the brass players. But sound designer Mike Zarin told IndieWire that he was responsible for the idea of the low rumble, trying to capture the train portions of Inception in a sound effect. He went out, he made some field recordings, and he got to work making a low rumbly thing, which turned into Inception's teaser trailer sound before Zimmer was ever around. Zarin says that once Zimmer was officially on board, he added some oomph and musicality to that rumble, giving us the Brahm for the second trailer. It's also worth mentioning that Christopher Nolan, Inception's writer and director, put the Brahm in the film's script, which calls for massive low-end musical tones sounding like distant horns. But still, Zimmer's trailer Brahm isn't the Brahm heard round the world. His adjustment to Zarin's was further adjusted for the third and most watched trailer— which was scored by Zach Hemsey, a composer hired for that trailer only. His is the paradigmatic Brahm. So, for the sake of clarity, Zach credits Mike and Hans, Hans credits Chris and Hans, Mike credits Hans Chris, editor Dave Rosenthal, producer Lori Brown, marketing exec Masi Rafani, and Transformers. That sound, Zarin told IndieWire, using an impactful sound design element to reinforce the idea of a trailer, in my recent memory, was first done effectively in the first Transformers trailer. For reference, here are a few examples of that sound from the original non-teaser trailer for Transformers. Right behind you here, it sounded like several sonic booms. Zarin, I think, is right. In trailer use, yes, Transformers. In modern film, though, no, actually. The Transformers Brahm predates Inception, but another Brahm predates Transformers. It is completely absent from its film's trailer, which is maybe why it's gone unconsidered and undiscussed, but it is, I think, a Brahm nonetheless. I think it more than adequately stacks up to those similarities we keep talking about. But hey, I'm going to let you judge for yourself. Here it is, as it appears, for the first time in its film. See if you recognize or can guess where it's from. (laughs) That is a scene from 2005's War of the Worlds with Tom Cruise. And it is, as far as I've been able to find, the first modern theatrical use of the Brahm. It even fits the robot aliens theme. It is diegetic, though. It's made in the world of the film. And it's not used in the trailer. Do these facts break the family resemblance? I'll let you decide for yourself. For what it's worth, my guess as to why this Brahm wasn't featured in the main War of the Worlds theatrical trailer is because in 2005, trailers, War of the Worlds among them, were caught up in another audio trend. Dramatic operatic vocal music, preferably in Latin. That the War of the Worlds trailer didn't Brahm is maybe both surprising and unsurprising then. Iconic sound, but a more pressing zeitgeist. And 100% plausibly, this story could end here. The Brahm was created as a threatening, creaking metal siren groan produced by alien robots, leveraging a millennia of deeply ingrained, effective response, and over a decade or so got abstracted by the churn of the movie industry into an all-purpose trailer-dwelling danger honk. But it doesn't have to. End here, I mean. Because one step further back, source material-wise, in Orson Welles' Halloween 1938 Mercury Theatre on the Air CBS radio broadcast of War of the Worlds, there's something of note. There are only a few sound effects in the original broadcast. The aliens, in this version of War of the Worlds, mostly make uh, hissing sounds. The metal of their cylindrical casings, creaks, people scream as shit goes south in northern New Jersey, boats honk, and... The artillery shells fired by the 22nd Field Artillery Battery make this sound. The following segment is just over a minute long. First, we take you to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery, located in the Washing Mountains. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! 140 yards to the right, sir. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire. Hit, sir. Got the tripod of one of them. They're soft. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift, 50, 30 meters. Thirty meters? Projection 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire. can see the shell answer. At this point, we may be rubbing up against the limits of those similarities in the large and in the small. Are Brahms radio sound effects? Are they made by guns? Are they made by the good guys? Does it matter? Morphologically, these fit the bill, at least as closely as one could hope for a radio broadcast from the late 30s before synthesizers and subwoofers. They're the right shape, the right tone, the right length. They fit the genre requirements and fulfill the dramatic function of a Brahm. They are unsettling, they are dramatic, ominous. There's no sound like them elsewhere in the broadcast. But like the War of the World 2005 Brahms, these ones are also diegetic. They take place in the world of the fiction. If you were to abandon the Brahm train at this point, that's fine. But for those who are still on board, let's at least resolve the authorship of these potential proto-Brahms for the sake of due diligence. Orson Welles was not their creator. He was producer, director, talent of the broadcast, but at the time worked with CBS's production crew, including their sound effects chief. So, if we accept that the 1938 War of the Worlds radio broadcasts are, in fact, Brahms, then the foremost candidate for authorship, until a time at which we uncover something similar earlier, which is possible but seems unlikely, the foremost candidate for authorship is not Hans Zimmer, Mike Zarin, or Zach Hemsey, it's not Transformers sound designer Eric Adal or War of the Worlds 2005 sound designers Richard King or Michael W. Mitchell, but rather CBS sound effects chief Aura D Nichols credited widely with being a pioneer of radio sound effects and quote the only woman expert on sound effects in broadcasting at the time the magazine variety did a piece on her in 1938 and to read it it would seem Aura was not only the only woman sound effects expert in broadcasting but the sound effects expert in broadcasting. After a show she worked on transitioned from CBS to NBC, she was, quote, very much missed as no one at NBC had as much knowledge of sound effects as she did, stated by a program director that nobody in the entire business knew as much about specialized sound effects as Miss Nichols. The piece goes on to describe Aura as someone content to do her work, uninterested in notoriety, fine with anonymity, ironic for the early potential author, if we can say such a thing exists, of such a dramatic and now ubiquitous sound effect, but also perhaps exactly the kind of contradiction that gives life texture. My name is Mike Rognetta, and this podcast has been Reasonably Sound. You can find Reasonably Sound on Twitter and Instagram at ReasonablySND, and you can find me at Mike Rognetta. The Gravitas of Brahms was produced by Mr. Stephen Bruckert and our custom Brahms sound effects by Bailey Math at Bailey Math Sound. Reasonably Sound's music is by Will Stratton and visual design by Tita Tepp. Thanks to all of Reasonably Sound's patrons for their help. If you want to support the show, it would mean the world to me. Head to patreon.com forward slash reasonably sound, where you can learn more about donating the Reasonably Sound newsletter and more. (sighs) It's good to be back.